Well, as we said, this is the uh, fourth in our series, in, in this Advent series that we've been um, going through. We've been looking at some of the different prophecies in the Old Testament which show us different aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ's coming. And if Warren just puts the first um, slide up, we've just, this is the little overview of what we've, not this one, the next one. Thanks, Warren. That's the overview of where we've been going, where we are tonight, and where we'll go next week. This, we've looked at the sign from Isaiah chapter 7, the promised child in that famous verse in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born. This morning we thought about how the Lord would be born in Bethlehem, as we saw from Micah chapter 5. And next Sunday morning, God willing, we'll look at the prophecy of the king, the coming king. So for this evening, we're thinking about a light in the darkness. And tonight we're going to see, hopefully simply, three things. Walking in darkness, a coming servant, and the light that has come. So firstly, a people walking in darkness. Now, I don't know if any of you went on camps or uh, church holidays or things like that but when I used to go on young people's camps and it seems to be getting further and further away in the past one of the highlights that you seem to have to do was the midnight walk and another one was the midnight feast I'll leave you to guess which one um, I preferred and my friends preferred but the midnight walk I don't know if health and safety have stopped those now but if you're in the countryside in Wales somewhere like the Quinter or wherever it was if you wanted to go out at midnight on the midnight walk, you needed a torch. Or at least a few people in the group would need to have a torch because on those narrow lanes, on those country paths, you needed to see where you were going. Here in the city, you could go outside at two o'clock in the morning and it's still pretty light really, isn't it? There's enough street lamps or building lights or cars with headlights. It's never really that dark outside. But maybe you have been somewhere that's very remote, where at night it's absolutely pitch dark and you can't see what's in front of you. Or perhaps you've woken up in the night and you don't want to put a light on because you don't want to disturb people. And you literally have to feel your way out of the room by reaching out to touch the wall or to not knock things over. Maybe it's just me, but I wonder if anyone else is starting to find driving at night a bit tricky. And even this last year, I've started to think, I really don't like driving at night in the dark. Things just seem a bit further away, or maybe they seem a bit nearer. And a couple of weeks ago, I bashed the car at night. In the darkness, you can't see what's there sometimes. You can't see the dangers. You can't see the things that are valuable to you. Just yesterday, we got sent a picture from Thomas, our eldest lad, who's away at university, and a house about 10 doors down from him, the top floor, was on fire, and he'd had to call the fire brigade to get them out. And if that was my house on fire, or yours, would you be saying to the kids, just leave what, don't be going to pick things up, you just need to get out. Don't worry about your stuff, just get out. If it's dark, the darkness can disorient us. We don't know where we are. We don't know where we need to go. So in the darkness, there's danger. 
You can't see what's valuable. You can't see the way to go. You can't see where you should be. We read in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2 and said this, a people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And in this chapter this evening that you could have open in front of you in Isaiah chapter 42, God is promising his servant, his son Jesus, as a light to the Gentiles. And we need to know how and we need to know why. So what is this darkness which Isaiah is talking about? What does it mean for a people to walk in darkness? Well, we know that it's real. If you were here last Sunday, we heard from Isaiah chapter 7 of this king. Do you remember King Ahaz, the wicked king who we heard had provoked God to anger? And Isaiah had gone to him and met him and pleaded with him to turn to God and to trust in him. If you will not believe, then you will not be established. You won't stand firm, he'd said. But Ahaz, he wouldn't believe and he wouldn't trust. And so God said he would deal with him. And God had even asked Ahaz again, go on, ask for a sign. God was offering him freely a chance to confirm God's own power and cement trust in him. But the king Ahaz was too proud and he said, I won't test God because I know better than God. I make the rules in my life, not God. That's walking in darkness. That's what it looks like saying, I know best. I make the rules. I'm in charge. I don't need God. It's all there for us. The history of God's people in the Old Testament, and we heard it again this morning, was of people walking with God, following his laws, following his way for a time, and then many of them turning completely away, doing whatever they wanted. And God can't ignore that, can he? Just ignoring him and living their own way, living in darkness. But is today any different? What do we walk after? What do you walk after? Many people worship the idols of sport. Who's going to win the World Cup? Well, not England, obviously. Is your team still in? Who's going to win the Premier League? Who's going to win this and that? Maybe you worship the idols of social media, the YouTubers, the TikTokers or whatever. If those of us who are parents, these things aren't a joke. These people, these celebrities can have far more influence over our children than we would care to imagine. Maybe as we get older, we worship the idols of money and possessions and status and career. Why? Because people see these things as what is important. People see these things as more important than cultivating a spiritual walk with God. Why? Because, says the Bible, we are blind. Because we're in the dark. The Apostle Paul writes well about why people don't believe the good news about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see there? He's writing about a people walking in darkness too. 
but he also talks of the light, of the light of the glory of Christ. And Paul says that the heartbreaking thing is that even when people know the truth, even when it's laid out clearly for them, they'd still rather walk their own way. Not many weeks ago when we studied Romans, we saw from chapter one all these different ways in which people would live, the sins that they would wallow in. And the letter actually tells us that God gave them up to. And Paul says that they didn't even want to have God in their thoughts, in their knowledge, in their minds. They just wanted nothing to do with him. And so, what did God do? The letter says God gave them over to all sorts of uncleanness to worship themselves rather than God the creator. That's walking in darkness. In John chapter 3, when Jesus had been speaking with Nicodemus, Nicodemus had asked him, how can someone be born again? And Jesus had said to Nicodemus, you, you call yourself a teacher, but you don't get it. In chapter 3 and verse 19 of, of that chapter of John, Jesus said this, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and yet men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. You see all this? This is the scenario. This is the darkness into which Jesus Christ came. Those few verses that we've just read tell us that men and women not much different to us, actually liked the way that they lived. They preferred it. Even though, as the Bible says, it would lead them straight to destruction, they loved the darkness. If you turn to John chapter 3 later, Jesus goes on in that chapter and says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, otherwise his deeds would be exposed. And everyone would see. I wonder if you've ever been out in the garden and you've lifted up a big stone that's been in the same place for ages. And under the stone there's lots of little creatures of some sort or another. And as soon as the light shines on them, it's like they hate it. And they scurry back to get under another part of another stone. They hate the light. They love the darkness. And so what did these people need? As we come into Isaiah chapter 42, what did they need and what do we all need now? Well, let's see in verses 1 to 4. Secondly, thanks Warren, the coming servant, the coming servant. And sometimes, you know, as you read the Bible, don't you find that the Bible surprises us? If there was going to be one so powerful, one so strong who could rescue us from darkness, then the opening words of Isaiah chapter 42 and verse one might surprise you. Behold my, what would you expect the title to be for this coming Messiah? The title is Behold my servant. Behold my servant, says God. Not behold the mighty leader, not behold the captain of the army, not behold this mighty warrior, but it's behold my servant whom I uphold. See, in the chapter before, Isaiah had been looking to the future, calling Israel God's servant, and promising them that God would preserve them, that God would protect them. 
God would keep his promises to them. And now he urges them to see another servant, the coming servant, God's own son, Jesus, God's chosen one. And everything that's going to happen to Jesus, everything that he's going to do and everything that he's going to go through is part of God's plan and part of God's purpose to save a people for himself. Will you see it? Look, see my servant who I uphold, says God. It's something that the Apostle Paul echoed much later in Philippians chapter 2 when he said that the Lord Jesus made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In verse 1, in this book, book of Isaiah, he says that he is God's elect one. He's God's elect one, or he's his chosen one, the one in whom my soul delights. Sounds a bit like the voice from heaven, doesn't it, that came when Jesus was baptised. The voice that said, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. He's God's beloved son, and so look what he's coming to do. We're going to see what he's coming to do. He is no ordinary saviour. And God says that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 1 here, I have put my spirit upon him. So that tells us that throughout Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit was on him and with him in a very particular way. Where can we see that? Well, we can see it in many places, can't we? We thought this morning with the children of how it happened at Jesus' birth, in his wonderfully unique conception. This was God at work by his Spirit. Hasn't happened that way at any other time, has it? It happened all through Jesus' childhood. How many children can grow up and not sin, not lose their temper, not get angry, not shout at mum and dad. God was at work in his son. It happened at his baptism, that verse that we just mentioned. It happened in Jesus's temptation when he was tempted in the wilderness and resisted Satan. It happened through his public ministry Think about his preaching. We think about his miracles that he did. All the things he was able to do, all the ways in which he was able to pray, all helped by the Holy Spirit that God says, I will put upon him. And of course, it happened through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. How did he face all that he had to go through? The Spirit of God was upon him. This is the light which has come. This is our servant. This is God's chosen one, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then in these next few verses, verses 2 to 4, we just see quickly and simply some of the ways in which God, through Isaiah, describes what this servant will be like and describe something of his character for us. In verse 2, we see quietness. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice. Look at how Jesus taught people. Look at how he taught his own disciples. Not ranting and shouting. It says he will be gentle in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Anyone who's ever tried to light a fire knows that when the fire goes out and when the fire's almost gone, 
you've got to be careful not to put it out if you want to save it. Look how Jesus treated people. Look at his compassion. Look at his care. Look at his gentleness. Maybe some of you, maybe I, can feel bruised and battered by things going on in our lives. But like Peter writes, we may cast all of our cares and anxiety on him, for he cares for us. It says in verse 3 that we see truth, that every word Jesus says is truth. Every word you have in your hand in the Bible is truth and can be relied on, and we can trust him. It speaks of justice in verse 3 and 4. We live in a world of injustice, don't we? We know what it's like. We see things all around us day by day that make us go, that's not right. But he will bring forth justice. And it says he will establish it on the earth. And these verses speak to us of a savior of strength. Of strength. We can look at all the things that he's going to do. This servant, this, this light to the people, he's not going to be a a flickering light. He's not going to be like a flimsy, bruised reed. He's not going to fail and break his promises. He will be a strong saviour, powerful, courageous, and faithful and true. And even though he's a servant, next Sunday morning we're going to see he's also our king. And we thought about that this morning as well, didn't we? And we see also in verse 4 that he's a saviour who's come to fulfil the law. To fulfil the law. That God has given us his law and Jesus comes to fulfil it. Shouldn't we, shouldn't you and shouldn't I, want then to keep God's commands? When we come to Jesus Christ, the one who is our light and the one who is our king, so this is a little picture of the Lord who would come, the one God has promised and spoken of as we see him described for us as our servants. But then thirdly, we see from verses five to nine that this light will come and this light has come. In verses five and six we read, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, gives breath to the people on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. Perhaps you can think of those verses in Luke's gospel when he tells us how Simeon saw the baby Jesus for himself, the child, and took him in his arms in the temple and he praised God and said, I have seen your salvation. For this child, this child is a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This is his son. This is God's son, Jesus, the promised one, the one who is coming as the light to the Gentiles. And what do we see that this light is going to do? Verse 7, it tells us that he's going to open blind eyes. I wonder if you could imagine what it would be like having been blind for many years or maybe all of your life and imagine there was an operation that could be done to give you your sight back and it worked 
Can you imagine the joy that you might feel when you could open your eyes for the first time and see the world around, see the colors, see the sky, see the stars? The Lord Jesus did that, didn't he, for blind Bartimaeus? You remember him in Mark chapter 10? Gave him his sight back and he was so happy that he followed after Jesus. He's going to open blind eyes. He's going to free the captives, it tells us in verse 7, to bring out prisoners from the prison. I don't know if you see much of the news, but on the news this week, they focused on the swap between someone called Victor Boot, or Bout, I don't know how you pronounce it, a Russian arms dealer that was in prison in America, and an American basketball player called Brittany Griner, who'd been in prison in Russia for about a year. And lots of people probably behind the scenes here and there have been talking about, you swap this one for that one. We'll let her go, you let him go. How many people were involved in negotiations to swap those two prisoners so that both could go back to their home countries? Yet Isaiah says that this Jesus, this coming servant, he will bring out the prisoners from the prison, as he puts it, and free them and free the captives. We often see a Christian being a Christian compared to that, don't we? As the hymn writer puts it, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But my eye saw a quickening ray, and I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He will release the prisoners. And verse 8 tells us that God will receive the glory in all this, that it's for him and for no one else, not to any idols or graven images. It says in verse 8, God will receive the glory. And perhaps you can think as we think of this topic of the light of the world, the light in the darkness, of some of these different places in the Gospels where Jesus either calls himself the light of the world or where the writers do it of him. You could go to, exam for example, to John chapter 1, where John writes, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He goes on, He, Jesus, was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Have you seen that? Will you see it? Will you see him as the light? And what did Jesus say about himself? Well, further on in John in chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And a couple of chapters on, in chapter 12, Jesus said, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk, then, while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. That's where we started, isn't it? By thinking about what the darkness can do. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. But Jesus said, while you have the light, 
believe in the light so that you may become the sons of light. Maybe think about that phrase that Jesus just said for a moment. For a little while longer, the light is among you. We've all had another day today, haven't we? Maybe we'll get another day tomorrow and another one the day after that and another one after that, but who knows? You've had today then another chance to open your Bible. You've had then another chance today to think about God's claims from his word. We've all had today another chance to hear about this promised son of God who came to rescue us from our sins. We've heard about him, the one who was the sign, the one who's the promised child, the one who would be born in Bethlehem, the one who is our everlasting king, and yet, as we heard this morning, our caring shepherd. But friends, you and me, we need to humble ourselves. We need to come to him and we need to trust him. For a little while longer, the light is among you. So can I ask, where are you walking? Where are you walking? Is it in the darkness? Or is it in the light, safe in his presence? I wonder if your testimony is like the words that we're going to sing together in a few moments. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within and had no taste for heaven's joys. That's walking in darkness. But then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. See, our prayer this evening is that this great God of highest heaven, who came down to earth in the person of his son, would indeed fill and occupy all of our lowly hearts this day.